The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Farmers and agribusiness owners throughout California are wondering, who do they obey, the state or the feds? The confusion? It's due to the crackdown and roundup of illegal immigrants by federal ICE agents here in California. But the state's attorney general has told business owners if you turn over any of your workers' paperwork to ICE agents without the proper authority, you could face a $10,000 fine. And this is a big problem for California agriculture. As much as 70% of all farm labor may be illegal immigrants. Also, we have lessons learned by one Sonoma County rancher after last October's deadly wildfires. And feral pigs are back in the news. All that and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. There's a lot of confusion among California's farmers as well as business owners about what to do about illegal immigrants. On the federal level, Thomas Homan, the acting director of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, said his agency plans increased enforcement in California against illegal immigrants because of the state's declared status as a sanctuary state. On the other hand, California says you have to follow the rules if you're going to do that. Attorney General Xavier Becerra of California says employers must protect confidential information about employees when federal immigration and custom enforcement agents start to ask questions or they risk some penalties. But I think it's important, given these rumors that are out there, to let people know, and more specifically today, employers know that if they voluntarily start giving up information about their employees or access to their employees in ways that contradict our new California laws, they subject themselves to actions uh, by my office or local prosecutors in um, enforcing AB 450. One of those penalties, a $10,000 fine. AB 450 was authored by California Assemblymember David Chu of San Francisco, but there's still a lot of confusion among some employers, and even David Chu admits it's not going to stop these crackdowns. He told KPIX News, We can't stop deportations from happening, but we can certainly ensure that we're not cooperating uh, with, with uh, allowing Donald Trump to move forward with his anti-immigrant, xenophobic, racist agenda. The Fresno Bee reports that the advice from the state's top law enforcement officer comes only days after at least 40 workers at the B-Suite Citrus plant in Fowler lost their jobs after federal immigration agents began checking employee records. They're searching for people who are not legally allowed to work in the United States. The recent clarification of the law by the Attorney General was meant to bring clarity for businesses as workplace raids by ICE agents seem to grow more frequent in the state and employers are increasingly on the front lines of California's immigration war with the Trump administration. The New York Times has reported that approximately 70% of all farm workers are living in the United States illegally, that according to researchers at UC Davis. Data from the Department of Labor shows an increased demand for foreign farm workers. In the first quarter of 2018, the Department of Labor certified 15% more positions than they did in the first quarter of 2017. Overall, the demand for farm labor through the foreign worker H-2A program is up over 100% compared to five years ago. AFBF economist Veronica Nye says the data supports comments from farmers that say they are having trouble finding workers. Farmers continue to voice that they're 
having trouble finding labor. Now, oftentimes it's difficult to measure that workforce, but the H-2A program at least gives us an instrument to understand the amount of demand that we're seeing on the ground. Farmers must advertise available jobs to the domestic workforce before turning to the H-2A program and have increased wages to find more labor, yet the issue remains. Typically, you'd think that increasing wages would draw more domestic workers to those positions. But what we're actually seeing is that farmers aren't able to hire those domestic workers and are turning increasingly so to the H-2A program. Finding a solution to the farm labor issue is a priority for AFBF. The fact that we continue to see this increasing demand for workers through the H-2A program, that we continue to see those stories on the ground that farmers are unable to find the labor that they need and, and therefore they're not able to harvest all of their crops, And the fact that we keep seeing more and more legislation introduced year after year suggests that this is a long-term issue that we're going to have to deal with as an industry. Michael Clements, Washington. It's warm, it's dry, it's not typical winter weather here in California. And that's affecting operations on the state's farms and ranches. Farmers say warmer-than-average temperatures in recent weeks have pushed crops ahead of a typical schedule, and that might leave some crops vulnerable to frost when colder weather resumes. The lack of rain in the Central Valley has encouraged some farmers to irrigate trees and vines earlier than they typically would. With more on the western weather, here's the USDA's Stephanie Ho. Although there is heavy snow and rain in some parts of the country, USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey points to subpar levels of high-elevation snowpack in much of the western United States. We are seeing, as we move well past the halfway point of the western winter wet season, extremely low snowpack volumes as you move into states like California, Oregon, Nevada, and points south and east from there. He points to one specific example. The all-important Sierra Nevada watershed areas now containing an average of just four inches of liquid in the high elevation snowpack as of mid-February. That is only about 20 percent of what is typical for this time of year. He says even if the area sees normal precipitation for the rest of the season, the snowpack would still be below average. It would take truly a, a late February and March miracle to bring this snowpack up to a level that would approach normal. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Oddly enough, last year's heavy rains in California contributed to reduced vegetable production in the state. That according to an annual report issued Tuesday by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The report showed total vegetable production in California down 11 percent compared to the previous year, though harvests of crops such as cauliflower, sweet corn and romaine lettuce increased. California accounted for 57 percent of the nation's vegetable production in 2017. The Secretary of Agriculture continues his West Coast swing midweek with stops in the Golden State. And we're trying to look at every regulation that may impede your productivity. I want to hear from you very candidly what's working, what's not working. Secretary Sonny Perdue at the World Ag Expo in Tulare, California Tuesday, hosting a town hall meeting. His solicitation of feedback on various ag and regulatory issues continues at several California farms through Thursday. A similar itinerary for the secretary occurred earlier in the week in Nevada, including a speech at the National Grocers Association Convention in Las Vegas. The USDA, we're going to push for 28 deregulatory actions, no final regulatory actions in the queue. These actions alone, we believe, will save over $56 million just this year, and we're just really getting started. I want to hear from you about that. If you go to the USDA website, we've got USDA.gov slash reform, where you can send us your ideas. 
I'm Rod Bay reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Buyers of tomato products want to know more about the farmers who grow tomatoes. That's according to market research. And the California Farm Bureau Federation recently talked to Roger Wasson of the Tomato Products Wellness Council, and he describes the research at the California Tomato Growers Association annual conference back in January in Modesto. Both the millennials and the Hispanic markets that we're talking to want to know more about the farmer that's producing it. Now, we've been talking about this for some time, uh, and yet it seems like we haven't really hit the brink of, have we done too much talking about the farmer? Not at all. I mean, we're hearing people that are saying they're almost as interested in the farmers as they are in the brand itself. So rather than just thinking about a company and a product that's making the salsa or the spaghetti sauce or the ketchup, that they want to be able to see the farmer that's behind that production. It's kind of a challenge because they tend to be modest. They don't brag about themselves. And I think that most of these guys are thinking, who cares? You know, I'm I'm a farmer. I do, do what I do. And they don't think of themselves as being celebrities or that a public is interested in them. But the fact is, there is a public that's very interested in them. We'll be doing podcasts. We'll be doing films. We'll be doing stories. Uh, we want to also encourage the brands to be sure that they have on their website stories about the farmers that are supplying them. If you're looking for the California Crop Report, normally heard at this time on the KSTE Farm Hour, the National Agricultural Statistics Service that compiles that information is now publishing monthly only. However, the weekly release of those statistics will resume on April 2nd. With a raging wildfire burning its way into Santa Rosa last October, some ranchers in the area affected by the pocket fire near Geyserville were largely left to their own devices. The California Farm Bureau Federation talked with Ed Venoni and his daughter, Adriana Garavaldi, about their efforts to fight the blaze and the lessons that they learned. We had over 750 acres of our 1,800 acres that was burned. Um, Part of that was backfires that were set to prevent the fire from heading into the subdivision that is right to the sort of south of us. We keep these fields around um, any of the buildings and barns really graze down in the summer, but then we also have fire hoses and we have cement tanks. We uh, got a water truck because that was one thing. We couldn't even get, um, you know, a a fire truck here with some water that could have helped on that first day when uh, the fire came out of the canyons and sort of hit, you know, some of these more open places to get it stopped. Having your own resources um, in the event of a disaster, an emergency, is definitely good. This country around us was all livestock at one time. And now we're the only ones. When you get a fire like that and, and you got all that extra growth, there was no controlling it. Uh, the only reason we ended up as good as we did, the wind quit. If it had kept blowing, I don't know where we'd have been. The Venoni Ranch near Geyserville was part of the Pocket Fire last October, a fire that burned over 17,000 acres. The Pocket Fire was just one of 250 fires that broke out across Napa, Lake Sonoma, Mendocino, Butte, and Solano counties last October. In total, 245,000 acres were burned, 8,900 buildings destroyed, and unfortunately, 44 deaths. 
Although the Santa Rosa Fire Department recently announced that arcing PG&E power lines to be one of the causes of two small fires in the Santa Rosa area, parallel investigations by CAL FIRE as well as the State Public Utilities Commission continue into the cause of all those devastating fires. Those inquiries are expected to hold the most sway in assigning any responsibility for the causes, and the results could be months away from completion, according to state officials. Hi, my name is Rich Cassell. I'm a district conservationist for the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service in California. I'm also a certified professional erosion and sediment control specialist. I've been working with the agency now for over 42 years, and I've had a lot of experience working with wildfires and restoration of wildfire damaged areas on California watersheds and landscapes. NRCS has several different programs um, that uh, addresses uh, fire restoration. So a wide variety of audiences we, we deal with that have uh, concerns about erosion and soil protection, uh, both uh, in preventing uh, damages before a fire, uh, immediately following fire, or being downstream of a fire. If I was to narrow down three things a landowner um, should do following fire, um, I would say that it's important to um, keep bare and disturbed soil protected. And in some cases, it may already be protected. A raindrop hits bare soil at about 30 miles an hour and it can displace soil particles five feet in any given direction. So even if it hits a leaf, if it hits a rock, if it hits part of a plant part, it's gonna take all that energy out of that water and spread it out. A second rule would be drainage, is, is again, um, looking at sources of concentrated flow over a fire damaged landscape, either whether from a roadway, from a trail, from uh, drainage systems that were in place that were doing something before the fire now have been compromised in some way and will only uh, be a problem after fire unless we tend to areas where water is able to concentrate and collect on the slope. Sometimes this might be at culvert outlets where a roadway was burned on both sides before you had dense vegetation at the culvert outlet. Now you have nothing. So um, we find that most of our erosion issues are gonna come from the areas that were most severely disturbed, um, where the ground was actually churned up, you know, from the firefighting effort, from um, previous road systems and uh, conduits of, of water in the landscape. The third point is really to do nothing. It's, it's so important to really decide whether or not you need to do anything right up front before you throw everything but the kitchen sink at it and only end up giving your, you, yourself a false sense of security or hope because you feel like you've done everything you can, you've protected everything, and you're good to go for winter. On this particular fire, we've just had uh, a significant rainstorm, the first rainstorm of the season, and we're just starting to see evidence of erosion and concentrated flow over the landscape. In this particular situation, we have a little access trail that has channel channeled the water and has started to cause some rilling. Initially, the erosion process is at work here. Um, if we don't do and address this, before 
future rains, this could turn into, you know, a sizable erosion problem. It could even turn into a large, large gully if it's not addressed early. So what can we do here? Is we take care of the source of this water by outsloping this trail. Just as simple as a hand rake, taking this outside berm off of this trail that's causing the concentration and diversion of water um, to this low point. Um, that, once you do that, there isn't going to be any concentration of, of flow here, so there won't be any more water entering that small channel, causing it to get larger and larger. I hope some of the things we talked about today will be helpful in planning for uh, winter following fire, uh, maybe preparing your landscapes uh, for the future if there were a fire, and also to protect your home if you're downstream uh, of a fire. Whatever you do, um, try to keep in mind that one size does not fit all. Sometimes doing nothing is better than um, doing something that might create a false sense of security or actually make a problem worse. Working with qualified and pro professional um, experts, including NRCS. NRCS has offices in practically every county in California. I always say it's a good first stop. It's free assistance. They can also help with a site assessment or other helpful information that's specific to your, your county or your area. Look for additional information from local NRCS offices and check out the California website for more details. And that website to visit is ca.nrcs.usda.gov. Once again, the Sacramento County Farm Bureau is offering scholarships to eligible Sacramento County high school and college students in several different fields related to agriculture. The executive director of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau, Bill Bird, says there are many related fields that scholarships are available for. You, we do have four different types of scholarships, ranging from a scholastic scholarship, child of an agricultural employee scholarship, career technical scholarships, and then there's the Young Farmers and Ranchers Agricultural Scholarship. We have all of this information on the Sacramento County Farm Bureau website. There are applications online as well, directions of how to apply and the materials that should be submitted. We need to have everything submitted by April 1st of this year, 2018, and that's when the decision process will be made. For more information, visit the Sacramento County Farm Bureau website, sacfarmbureau.org. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at kste.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Bugs and other creepy crawlies are not the only invasive pests out there. Feral swine have spread throughout the country. They're an invasive species. They have reached as many as 40 states. That was Kevin Shea, the administrator of USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS. Feral swine are dangerous not only to agriculture, but to just homeowners. They can tear up your backyard in five minutes. They tear up golf courses, tear up parks. But in agriculture, they can go through a row of corn and wipe it out overnight. They're also full of diseases. One disease rampant in them is pseudorabies. It's a disease that at one time affected the livestock industry, the swine livestock industry. 
and we were able to eradicate that disease from domestic production in the United States. I'm Stephanie Ho, and in this week's Agriculture USA, we'll look at some new ways USDA is tackling the problem of feral swine. APHIS says there are more than 6 million feral swine around the country. Feral swine are spreading throughout the United States, and they cause a lot of damage wherever they basically become established. A lot of damage to our agriculture. There's an estimate out there of over $1.5 billion that we spend in damage to agriculture and trying to control these animals. That was Nathan Snow, a research biologist who is part of APHIS's feral swine project. The pigs not only carry diseases, they eat pretty much anything. In order to try to control them, the feral swine project is holding field trials this year to assess the effectiveness of a new sodium nitrite toxin that feral pigs access from specially designed bait stations. We've done quite a lot of research now to find something that feral swine will use and that keeps other species out. And it's essentially a trough with two lids, and the lids are held down with about 30 pounds of magnetic pressure that non-target species like deer and raccoons cannot open. The pigs themselves help the process. We're taking advantage of their natural behavior, which is they use their nose to root around in the ground. Essentially, they root around this base station and pop open the lid. Kurt Verkaterin, who leads APHIS's feral swine project, describes the scene. We don't want it to be some kind of feeder where it's just one pig at a time and they're all in a big line. We want this kind of feeding frenzy, and that's what we seem to be able to get pretty easily where all the pigs come in, they're all eating at once, and it's just a big flurry of activity. They eat all the bait and they move on. APHIS researchers are working with their counterparts in Australia and New Zealand, where officials already have used the same sodium nitrite toxin successfully. Within about an hour, hour and a half after eating the bait, they'll just lay down and sort of, it appears like they kind of fall asleep, slip into a coma, and pass away peacefully. He says there is no danger to the pig if it does not get enough of the toxin to be fatal. If they don't get a full dose, they recover completely. The sodium nitrite active ingredient metabolizes in their bodies quickly, so they're just back to normal. His colleague Snow says the fact that the toxin dissipates quickly is also important for other non-target animals. Most of the sodium nitrite will already be metabolized inside of the pig before it dies. And so any scavengers that come to eat the carcass are going to have a very low risk of getting any sort of secondary poisoning. Feral swine not only cause damage to crops, they also damage public and private property, native ecosystems, livestock, and human health. We've got a, a large initiative to start to control these feral swine. Much more effort into controlling them with other tools, too, like trapping efforts, aerial gunning, just education of landowners so that they realize that they aren't doing things like on purpose or inadvertently helping pigs. In other words... Some areas, for example, there's a lot of bait put out by hunters and wildlife watchers to be able to see deer, to be able to harvest deer, and everything else including pigs, will come to that bait. And we've got some data to show, and there's been some publications actually from others too, to show that all this artificial feed that's put out there, it's really helping those pig populations thrive. APHIS Administrator Shea says eradicating feral swine will not be easy. These are hard animals to catch. They're smart and relentless, and we can't just shoot enough of them. So the idea is to try to trap more of them. He elaborates. And when I say trap, it's not trapping one at a time, but trapping a whole group into a, a large cage and handling it that way because we can't shoot enough of these one at a time to do it. So we need more tools. The APHIS field trials with the sodium nitrite toxin will 
will take place in Texas in January and Alabama later this year. This has been Agriculture USA. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephanie Ho with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Domestic pigs are a familiar farm animal, but have you heard about wild pigs? The missionaries brought them with them back in the 1700s. Why did they do that? Where are they? How big a problem are they? They're quite an expensive problem, actually. We're talking with Roger Baldwin. He's a UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology. And Roger, wild pigs are really a big problem here in California, aren't they, for ranchers and farmers? They sure are. They they cause a tremendous amount of damage in a variety of different ways, um, whether it's their rooting activity uh, in rangeland areas, which can reduce forage for for livestock. Uh, it it um, opens up opportunities for invasive weeds to get established. Uh, they can foul water sources, uh, leading to um, potential uh, uh, water safety concerns. Um, we see increased erosion from pigs in certain areas. And then, of course, if we get into agricultural production areas, then we're lo looking at uh, losses in crop production, as well as potential food safety concerns from E. coli uh, contamination. So lots of lots of concerns when it comes to wild pigs. You have been conducting a survey of garnering information from uh, farmers and ranchers where there may have been wild pig damage. What are the areas of California where they are most intrusive? Uh, pigs are found pretty much throughout a large swath of the state. I think they're now found in all but one county of California. But yeah, you're certainly correct that there are certain areas where we see more common problems with pigs. These include some of the uh, north coast areas uh, extending, you know, from Mendocino down through Sonoma County, Marin. Uh, some of those areas are kind of hot spots for pigs and pig damage, as well as some of the central coast areas, particularly Monterey, San Luis Obispo counties, and in, in, in that general area. And then over in the, the foothills of the Sierras as well, uh, Fresno, Tulare, um, some of those counties and through the central part of the state also have pretty high pig populations. Talk a little bit about the history of the wild pig in California, how it got here, how it got loose, and what it's been doing. Well, uh, they've been here for a while now. Uh, I don't know that anybody is still completely certain how they all got established. There are several competing theories. Uh, one is simply that they were intentionally released in certain areas so that they could just forage naturally. Um, and then uh, be harvested whenever needed. Uh, some believe they may have just been uh, pigs that escaped and got established in certain areas. And then, you know, in the early 1900s, there's the belief that, um, you know, Russian or Eurasian boars were brought over here and released in certain areas to provide hunting opportunities. And this seems to be particularly prevalent over in some of the central coast areas where we see more of that Russian or Eurasian boar in the uh, general bloodlines over there. But, of course, through the years, there's been a tremendous amount of mingling um, between uh, feral um, pigs and, and the Eurasian boars that have been released in, in certain areas. What sort of damage can they do to, uh, to a farm, and, and how big are these critters? 
Well, um, like like I said, there's a variety of different kinds of damage that they can cause. Um, their general rooting activity can be damaging. If we're talking about you know farm production areas, they can root up cover crops that are planted. Uh, they can root up the crops themselves, particularly if we're talking about uh, leafy greens and certain vegetable crops. They can damage irrigation structures. Um, if we're uh, uh, in areas like uh, with, with certain crops like almonds, where they harvest and then shake the trees and then have the nuts fall down and then scoop them up, uh, we see problems with pig wallowing. They'll they'll find um, wet areas and um, at following irrigation and wallow and cre- create these depressions that the nuts then all get trapped down into and can't get sucked up properly through some of the harvesting equipment. So we see some of those kinds of damage. Uh, for some of the tree crops, they'll actually break down branches of the trees to get at fruits and nuts on those trees. Um, so that's just one other kind of damage that we see. I'm sorry, what was the other question there? What is the size of these animals? Size of pigs, yeah, absolutely. Um, 100 to 200 pounds. Um, 200 pounds is, is getting pretty good size for, for pigs here in California, but they do occasionally get a little bit larger than that. Uh, so you can have pretty good sized pigs. Now, isn't it, I heard that possibly the source of an E. coli outbreak in California's spinach fields may be attributed to wild pigs. Yeah, that was related back to an incident in 2006 where um, pigs got out into, like you said, so, to some spinach fields in, in the Salinas Valley. And that was um, a big concern at that time. It led to some very substantial uh, changes in how um, particularly leafy grains are managed uh, with respect to keeping out wildlife, and it may have led to some pretty extreme changes in in um, habitat management on adjacent spinach fields, uh, increased use of fencing and, and other management tools like that. Um, so it led to a pretty stark landscape for for wildlife in those areas, and some of that has been rolled back since that time because they found that you know really a lot of those changes didn't provide a lot of potential benefit and, and were somewhat damaging to the landscape out there. But you know, pigs do carry a lot of different diseases, and and they certainly uh, can carry things like um, E. coli in fecal matter too. And so there's a real big concern of, of keeping pigs out of those those certain areas. Are there problems with wild pigs spreading disease to domesticated pigs? Yeah, so there is a real concern there. Pigs carry uh, a variety of different diseases. I think it's it's over 30 different documented diseases that, that pigs can carry, and a lot of those can be um, transmitted to, to domestic wildlife, whether it's um, pseudo-rabies, uh, leptospirosis, brucellosis, um, variety of different diseases, and some of those can be um, potentially transmitted to humans as well, so there are a lot of this, those concerns. Pigs are, are pretty smart critters, and I would think that if one wants to fence them out of rangeland or a farm, that it would have to be a pretty special fence because they'd find a way to get under the fence. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Fencing pigs out is, is a very challenging proposition. They're very strong. They're a very smart animal. Uh, they can figure things out quite easily. And so um, fencing is used to some extent to keep pigs out of, of certain areas. Um, and it can be relatively successful, 
although a 100% pig-proof fence um, maybe hasn't been developed yet. Uh, a really determined pig can get into to certain areas. They do have to be maintained regularly because pigs will travel up and down those fences, and if they start to see an area a weakness in the fence, they can exploit that, whether it's something that they can, you know, maybe a wire's got a little bit loose at the bottom, and so they can kind of dig a little bit and, and crawl underneath it. Um, other cracks and, and places like that they might potentially be able to get through as well. Uh, so pigs are quite good at getting around a lot of those fencing structures, but they, they can be effective to some extent at, at at least slowing movement of pigs into certain areas. Now, I know that pigs have been allegedly eradicated from places like Santa Cruz Island or Pinnacles National Park, but that was a rather expensive venture for a, a few feral pigs, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, pigs can be removed from certain areas if if the money is available to do so. But but you're right; it's absolutely very expensive to do so, and it's not necessarily getting the first. Um, I don't know, 70 or 80 percent of the pigs in an area. I mean, that's challenging enough, and it's expensive enough. But the real expense comes in getting those last few remaining pigs because they really wise up. They get to the point where it's essentially impossible to get them in traps. Um, they're very good at avoiding people out there who might um, be hunting, trying to remove pigs individually. And so it takes some pretty unique tools to be able to do that, uh, to get those last few remaining pigs. Oftentimes that includes the use of dogs to track pigs. Um, it might include the use of helicopters to fly around and, and try to spot pigs. Uh, they have another strategy called um, Judas pigs, where they will actually go and capture one pig in the sounder or a group of pigs, put a radio collar on that pig, and then let it go. And then they'll track that pig back to wherever it goes. And if it takes them back uh, to a group of, of other pigs, then they can, can remove that whole group at a time. So it takes a variety of different tools to, to be able to get rid of um, the pigs in a particular area. And getting rid of those last very few pigs are what really is difficult and expensive. That's Roger Baldwin, UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist. We're talking about wild pigs and how to control them, which cause $1.5 billion in economic damage to agriculture in California every year. And according to Baldwin, they're rather aggressive creatures that can scare off your own domestic animals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We see that around watering sources. Um, feeders, things along those lines. Uh, they definitely think that um, they own that area and and will keep those other animals out until they're done utilizing that resource. And so uh, that can be problematic both from a rancher perspective, but also problematic for some of our native wildlife species, uh, which are not used to, to dealing with such an, uh, an overtly aggressive animal. I would think that because of their lack of sweat glands that they're attracted to pieces of property where there may be year-round standing water. Yeah, water is one of the real limiting resources for pigs. Um, it's it's the one, one of the key things that they absolutely have to have. And so whether we're talking about riparian areas, ponds, um, areas that um, supply water for livestock, etc., or irrigation in, in agricultural areas, um, these are resources that pigs will usually center around. They, you'll never find pigs too far away from a water source because it is absolutely imperative for them. Now, we talked about uh, the limits of excluding pigs from a, a, a piece of land. Uh, what are the other legal ways to control wild pigs? Well, 
pigs can um, be removed through depredation permits. So if you are a landowner who has um, pigs that are causing damage on the property, then you can contact California Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, explain the situation. They may or may not come out and assess the situation. And if they deem it appropriate, they'll issue you a depredation permit in which you can uh, then go out and remove pigs um, based on uh, whatever they provide, whatever guidance they provide in that depredation permit. So it may be shooting, it may allow for the use of trapping, et cetera. Um, if you're in certain counties, wildlife services available, is available uh, to assist with this. Um, they can go ahead and take care of, of some of the trapping and removal efforts for you. Certain counties also still have um, trappers that are hired by county agricultural commissioners um, to to go out and and take care of pig problems. And so those are, are some potential options. Hunting is used to some extent to, to help control pig populations. Hunting usually isn't enough to reduce populations um, so much, but they can be used to essentially move pigs off of property. So it, it won't solve the problem for everybody in the neighborhood, but it might solve the problem for a, a, lo- a local rancher. But usually when it comes to, to pigs, there's you know, not much else with um, respect to um, you know anything like along the lines of repellents or fertility drugs or even too much in the way of habitat manipulation that's going to be um, successful in, in eliminating problems with pigs. It's usually more of... Uh, or removing pigs from a certain area or, you know, fencing in, in some localized cases where um, it might be appropriate. Is the wild pig problem growing or is it static? Uh, yeah, the, the pig problem, we do believe, is, is a growing issue. Um, we've seen rapid expansion and increase in pig numbers over the last several decades. As I mentioned, we're now up to to pigs up in, in all but one county in, in the state. And so populations are expanding. Um, they're expanding not just in size, but in, in areas that they are occupying. Uh, so it is definitely an increasing problem. Now, I know last August that you sent out a re- request for information from landowners to ask if they have a wild pig problem in order for you to sort of target the areas where wild pigs are, are hap- inhabiting in California. Have you been getting some results back from those uh, landowners? Yeah, we've been getting some pretty good feedback so far. Um, we haven't actually... Um, begun our analysis on that project yet, uh, but we are looking for information pertaining to the amount of damage, the types of damage um, that pigs cause in a variety of different ran- ranching and agricultural landscapes. Um, we're also interested in how people perceive wild pigs. With wild pigs, we know that they cause a tremendous amount of damage in a variety of different situations, but it's a bit of a conundrum, too, because uh, wild pigs are also considered a game species here in California, and so a lot of people do like to hunt pigs. Um, there's a lot of revenue that is brought in from pig hunting uh, here in the state, so there are some potential benefits that the pigs provide, and, and there are a lot of reasons why some individuals in the state like having pigs. And so uh, it is a bit of a balancing act there when it comes to the potential um, harm they cause, as well as some benefits that are provided for some individuals. Yeah, but then you see pictures like uh, you have posted on the UCANR uh, Wild Pigs page of, of wild pigs drinking and swimming in a cattle trough. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And so you get those kinds of interactions that, that are real potential problems there, uh, whether it be because they're excluding cattle from drinking water, um, utilizing some of those water resources, or probably, uh, more importantly, fouling the water and increasing the likelihood of disease transmittance between pigs and cattle. Um, there's a, a tremendous number of uh, potential risks and hazards associated with having pigs in certain areas. You have a lot of great information online about wild pigs at the pest note on the UCANR page. If people just Google wild pigs UC, the letters UC, uh, I'm sure that page will pop up. And in the uh, research section at the bottom of that page, there's even information if, if people want to try to build a super duper fence to keep them out. Absolutely, yeah. There's lots of good information there, whether it be um, information for, for building a fence on how to keep them out, uh, for utilizing traps if you have a depredation permit to do so, and just some good general information on biology of wild pigs so you can have a better understanding of uh, how they move out there in the landscape, habitats that they like to use, how quickly they reproduce, etc. Lots of great information there. Wild pigs, they're destructive pests with voracious appetites, causing $1.5 billion in economic damage to agriculture and the environment in California every year. Roger Baldwin, UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist, thanks for a few minutes of your time today talking about wild pigs. Absolutely. Happy to help out. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.